we asked you this question during the offering or during the um, morning announcement time last week about what would you like to have accomplished at the end of your life? If you're sitting, you know, the way I picture it is me, 90 years old, in a rocking chair, you know, just kind of sitting, reflecting over all the things that I've done in my life, what is it that I hope to have accomplished? And you guys had a number of great responses, a number of great things that you, you said, and I want to share some of those here in just a little bit. Um, but one of the things is I started thinking about purpose as we begin a new series on living on purpose, living for a purpose, um, I, I started doing some research, like how do, we, how do we find what our purpose is? And there's all these questions and questionnaires out there that can, uh, they're supposed to help you figure out what your purpose is. A lot of those questions are, are like, you know, hey, when you were a kid, uh, what is it that you wanted to do? What have you always wanted to do? And whatever that is, that's your purpose. Uh, another one of those is what, what is it that when you're doing it, you forget to eat and poop? And I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. Like, I don't know that I've ever forgotten to do that. I maybe forget to eat. But it's like, what do you get so involved in that everything else just disappears? Maybe you have that thing. Maybe you have that passion, that, that one thing in your life that you're just uh, so wrapped up in it that time, time just seems to disappear. Uh, and, and you can be involved in that. <laughs> And some people see that and, and you have a passion for it and you have a desire for it. And, and we have a number of those things. In fact, you guys gave us some great responses last week. Um, and one of the things that I, that I loved about your responses is that as, as people responded, almost everyone said something about uh, being a part of something bigger than themselves. Or the, their answer indicated that they have this desire to be a part of something greater. Be a part of something bigger than just me. And I thought that was amazing that everyone has that kind of built-in desire to be a part of something greater than themselves. The other thing that came across was that most people want to leave some sort of uh, lasting impact on the world around them. And I thought that was another great thing, that people have this desire to, not, not for their name to be remembered, but to have left a mark, to leave an impact. And we're going to talk a little bit about those things. And the question that, that I have for you this morning is, are, are all the things that we, we listed last week, there's a number of good things, but are they the greatest thing? Uh, are they the thing that, that we should really be giving our life to? Is it really something worth giving our life to? And I, I think that's the question for me when I think about my own purpose, is have I discovered something, have I found something that's really worth giving my life to? Do I really want to dedicate my life to this one thing, to this one purpose? And we're going to unpack that a little bit this morning. But I want to share just some of the responses. We kind of broke them down into different categories. And this is how, how they kind of came out. Uh, we have earthly good deeds. So a lot of things about, you know, I want, to, I want to change people's lives. I want to make a difference in the world around me. This is a great thing. Um, that was about 29% of, of the things that, that people responded last week. The second was parenting or goals for your children. You know, things that I want to make a difference in my child's life. I want to have the opportunity to lead my child to be successful. Another great thing, that was about 38% of our people who responded. And then we see the next one is personal spiritual goals. That, you know, uh, it was things like I want to walk closer with the Lord. I want to have the opportunity to um, be with him and to, to grow deeper in my knowledge of God. And then we saw things like I want to share the gospel. 13% of you said had things that were related to sharing the gospel and leading other people to faith in Jesus Christ. These are some good things. And then the last thing that we, we saw were some people who had this commitment um, to 
disciple-making and discipleship. And that was about 3%. Now, these are all really, really good things. And the question that I want to raise for you this morning is, are you living for good things or are you living for the greatest thing? Are you living for good things or are you living for the greatest thing? And I, I want to say that, that all these things, all these are, are, are good things, uh, and I don't want you to think that pursuit of the greatest things means that you have to leave the good things out. In fact, what, what I hope you'll see this morning is that as you pursue the greatest thing, you'll see that all these other good things that you desire, that you want to have, uh, will fall under that. And the things that you're hoping to pursue will come in line with that as we pursue the greatest thing. Uh, And that greatest thing, Jesus tells us, he gives us something that we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Uh, This is after Jesus has been raised from the dead. Mary comes back and Jesus has told her, hey, tell my disciples to go meet me on the mountain that I told them about before I died. And so they go to that mountain and they're waiting for Jesus to show up. In verse 16, Matthew ends his gospel with this story. He says, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. We covered that last week. Then Jesus came near and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I want to I unpack this a little bit because this is a f- uh, passage that we often call the Great Commission. This is Jesus giving a charge to his disciples, to his followers, saying, here is your new purpose in life. Here is the greatest thing that you could ever possibly live for is to join me and join the Heavenly Father in this mission that I came to start. But you guys are going to finish it. This is your mission. This is what I'm giving you to do. And we know that all 11 of those disciples would give their lives, spend the rest of their lives, and eventually give their lives for the sake of this mission. The Great Commission. Now, there's a couple things that I want to point out here. Uh, and the first is that you, you may remember being a kid, and hopefully other people had this experience, and not just me, but your, your mom or your dad would say, I need you to go do this, and you would say, why? And what's the answer? Because I'm the daddy and I said so, right? So Jesus kind of gives a little preemptive, because I'm the daddy and I said so, because the first thing he says to him is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? So he's like, what I'm about to tell you, in case you're wondering why, here's why. Because I'm your daddy and I said so, right? So he kind of preemptively does that. Uh, He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he gives the disciples instructions. Now, I want us to notice some things about who the Great Commission is given to. Number one, it's given to the church. The 11 remaining disciples were the leaders of the first church. We know that there were about 120 disciples at this point that gather in Acts chapter 1 for the day of Pentecost. There's about 120, but these guys are representing that. So number one, it's given to the church. Number two, it's given to all members of the church, right? So they're to go back and tell the other disciples, the other followers of Jesus, hey, here's our, here's our marching orders, right? This is for every single one of us. 
And here's one of the things that I think is so sad in America is that the Great Commission, the work of making disciples, most church members think that that is something that is for the spiritually elite. That you have to be a staff member or a pastor or you have to be an elder or you have to be at some other level to be a part of the Great Commission. And what we see from Jesus is that his desire is that all Christ followers, all who've put their trust in Christ and Christ alone, would join in this mission. The second thing we see is that it's given to all churches. It's given to all churches. This is to be the model going forward, that all churches are to be a part of this great commission. And I'm proud to say that at River Rock, I feel like we do that. This is the primary mission of our church and should be the primary mission of every local church body. The last thing I want us to see is that the Great Commission was given so that disciples would make more disciples who would become churches. Uh, this is for disciples to make disciples who would become churches. Uh, you guys know I'm passionate about church planting. I believe in church planting. I believe it is uh, the, the most effective way for us to accomplish the Great Commission, which is we make disciples and we send them out into different parts of communities, into different parts of the world where they can go and make more disciples who will gather and form a local church who will make more disciples, send them out to other, other uh, ge- geographies where they'll make more disciples, gather them as a church, and send them out, right? You see how that works. This is what I believe is the most effective way. It's what we see throughout the New Testament. Uh, once you get to the book of the Acts, book of Acts, you see that this is what the apostles did. They went to an area, they made disciples, they started churches who would make disciples and saturate that entire area with the gospel. And this is right in line with what our strategy is here at River Rock Bible Church. Our vision is that every man, woman, and child would have the opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ. And we believe that we can accomplish that, number one, by making disciples. We have to multiply disciples. We have to multiply churches. We have a desire to plant more churches. And number three, we want to partner with like-minded ministries. But what I believe it all comes back to for us as a church, if we're going to accomplish that vision, that mission of reaching every man, woman, and child with the gospel, it comes down to our ability to make disciples. Now let me say this, it's not enough for us to be a church of disciples. We must be a church of disciple makers. We must be a church of disciple makers. And that's something I want to point out to you. If you look at the text with me again, Matthew 28, verse 18, there's something I want to point out here. So there's only one command, one verb that's given in this passage. And then there are three kind of uh, uh, participles that, that speak to that verb. It tells you how it's going to be done, right? So the only, the only command that Jesus gives in this passage is make disciples, make disciples. And what's interesting is that most of us think of discipleship and we think of it as a noun. It's a thing. It's, it's someone, right? A disciple is someone, but Jesus uses it as a verb. He says, this is an action. This is what I'm giving you to do. And so he tells them to make disciples. It's the only command that he gives them. That is the command. And so we see here that, um, Jesus is passionate about disciples and making disciples. It's the only command that he gives him. And we'll get to the other words in just a minute. John 17, 4. Let me set the scene for you. This is Jesus on the night he was about to be betrayed. He's already eaten the last supper with his disciples and he's praying. 
and he's about to head out and go to the garden where he's going to be betrayed. And in John 17, we have this prayer given by Jesus that's recorded by John. And it's interesting what we see as Jesus prays. He starts and he prays for himself. And part of his prayer for himself, he says this, Father, I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. He then goes on and he prays for his, his immediate disciples. And then he prays for me and you. He prays for all those who would believe through the disciples. Now, what's interesting about this is, again, let me ask, who's paying attention When did Jesus pray this? Before or after he went to the cross? A little bit louder. Before. Before. Good. You guys are still awake. Excellent. So he prays before he goes to the cross, but he says, I've glorified you on earth by what? By completing the work you gave me. How is it possible that Jesus could have completed the work that God gave him to do before he went to the cross? What is he talking about? What work is he talking about? If he hasn't gone to the cross yet, what work has he completed? Making disciples. He says, my mission on earth, yes, I came to seek and save the lost. I came to die on the cross. But the work that God gave me to do was make disciples. Now think about this. Why is it that Jesus could say that was the work God gave him to do? Well, let's think about this for a moment. What if Jesus had came died on the cross and rose from the dead and never made a single disciple, who would have have told other people about it? We would not be here today because we wouldn't know that it happened. The only reason we're here today is because Jesus spent three years making disciples, training men and women who would be able to go out and tell others and equip them so that they would be able to go out and tell others, giving their lives purpose joining God on the greatest mission to seek and save the lost and raise them up and train others to do the same. So we see that God has given us this great mission. Luke 6.40, I love this. For just a second, Jesus says that that is the work that God gave him to do. Luke 6.40, Jesus says, A student is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So if Jesus' work, his mission was to what? Make disciples, and we're his student, we're his teacher. What does that mean our mission is? To make disciples. So my God-given purpose is to devote my life to fulfilling the Great Commission by becoming a disciple maker. My God-given purpose as a follower of Jesus Christ is to devote my life to fulfilling the Great Commission by becoming a disciple maker. Again, it's not enough for us to just be disciples. And in fact, the church has tried that for for a number of years, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, But the greatest thing, the thing where we fall short, is not being disciples, but being disciple makers. Releasing you, releasing others to go and make more disciples. So how do we do this? How do we make disciples? Well, Jesus tells us, first he tells us, um, we talked about those participles, those words, those means, uh, words of means. He's going to tell us, make disciples, and I'm going to tell you how to do it. First he says, go. He says, go. Now, many of you have probably heard that what Jesus is really saying is going, right? As you're going. Uh, But I also think it's important to us to recognize that when Jesus says go, he's telling the disciples, hey, geniuses, you can't make disciples on this mountain. You got to get out of here. 
right? You've got to go to where the lost people are. You've got to go throughout your life, and you've got to be on this mission of making disciples. So what we have to recognize is that so often what we do as a church uh, or as the church is we say, hey, if we, if we build it, they will come. Right? If we have good enough worship, if we have good enough preaching, if we have good enough programs, if we have good enough Bible studies, the lost people will just come to us. But is that what Jesus says? Does Jesus say come or go? Jesus says go. So we have to go. Now, I do think it's important that he says as you're going. Uh, I think it's important for us to recognize that this is not disciple making. is not something that we do when we have extra time. It's not something we do when it's convenient for our schedule. It has to be who we are. It becomes what we do as we're going. As we're going to work, we're making disciples. As we're going to class, we're making disciples. As we're going to the ball field, we're making disciples. All these things that we hope to accomplish, to be good at our jobs, to raise kids who are successful and smart and do well in school and do well in sports and and to, to graduate college, all of these things that we want to accomplish... We can still accomplish those. We can still do those things. But we do them not for our own glory, not for our own success, not for the success of our children, but we do them as disciple makers. As you're going. So the the second thing Jesus tells them about how to make disciples is he says, baptize. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying, hey, look, you're going to go out and you're going to see converts. You're going to see people putting their trust in me and converting from whatever their previous line of thought was to Christianity, to becoming a Christ follower, and as a way uh, to demonstrate that they have been changed and that they are identifying with Christ, you're going to baptize them. Now, implicit in this is evangelism that we would be going out and we would be sharing the good news of Jesus Christ uh, with people who would then be putting their trust in him. And I think one of the things that that I can share is uh, there was a a church that I was uh, raised in, and a a lot of churches do this. It's called dip them and drop them, right? Uh, You're baptized. You came to Christ. We baptize you. Great. We're glad you're baptized. And that's it. What's the second part that Jesus says? Baptizing them and teaching them, but teaching them what? To obey. So we baptize them. And let me say this. If you're a Christ follower here today, if you've put your trust in Christ and Christ alone, and you've not been baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ, I encourage you out of obedience to our Lord that next week you would be baptized, that you would find me this week, you'd connect with me some way, and that you would follow through on baptism, taking that step to obey our Lord and his, his commission that he's gave, given us. Now, the, the, second, the third thing Jesus says is teach them. Teach them to obey. Now, here's the thing. There are a lot of churches that have really great teaching. There are a lot of churches that, that teach the truths of Scripture, uh, and, and they teach all these things, uh, have great Bible studies. They get into the Greek, they get into the Hebrew, and they dissect it. And they stop there. Is that what Jesus has told us to do? Has he told us just to have good teaching or has he told us to do something else? He says, don't just teach. Teach them what? To obey. Teach them to obey. Uh, statistics show that today churchgoers are, are, uh, demonstrate very little difference between um, themselves and the unchurched when it comes to areas like their giving, their divorce rate, and even their views on morality. And we see that there's, there's a disconnect. There are people who know God's word, but they're not living it out. 
There are people who know what they're supposed to do. They've been taught. They've been taught the Greek. They've been taught the Hebrew. They've been taught the original languages, but they're not living it out. And you may say, well, you, I've been a part of one of those churches where, where they teach really solid stuff. And you know what? The people aren't smoking. They're not drinking. They're not, you know, using harsh language. They're pretty nice people. And so, yeah, they're, they're disciples, right? Well, let me ask you, are they doing the one thing Jesus last commandment that he told them to do. Are they really active making disciples? And I've been a part of churches where there was some great teaching. There were people who had more scripture memorized than I have ever memorized in my my entire life, like little kids. They were so faithful in teaching the scripture, so faithful in unpacking it and learning it for themselves and studying it for themselves. But I can tell you, in in the five years that I was there, there was one baptism. One new believer in five years with all that knowledge. Now we look at this and we say, does that mean, does that, mean that, that we're disciples just because we know the good things? Jesus says in Luke 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. He is like the wise man who digs down deep and builds his house on the foundation of the rock. The wise man is the one who puts Jesus' words into practice. The man who builds on the sand and the storms come and the the water comes and wipes away his house is the one who knows Jesus' word but does not put it into practice. We need to be those who not only know the word but we put it into practice. And that's the difference between just being a good person, being a a believer in Jesus, knowing the scripture and putting it into practice. We've got to start applying it to our lives and being challenged to live it out. I found this quote this week. I love it. It says, the Bible was not written to satisfy your curiosity, but to conform you to Christ's image. Now, we know what the Great Commission is. Jesus tells us to go. Jesus tells us to be active in pursuing the lost and as they put their trust in Christ that we are to baptize them, that we're to bring them in as a, as a way to show that they have put their trust in Christ and then we're to teach them not just with head knowledge but we're to give them knowledge that goes from their head to their heart and out to their hands and that they are to join us in this process of making disciples and living obediently to him. So how are we doing as a church in America I have a couple of statistics here. The first is that there are 360,000 churches in America. That number's probably gone up in the past year since this study was done, but only 15% of them are growing. Only 15% of 360,000 churches in America are growing. 3% of those, only 3% of those are growing by new conversions. Only 3% of churches in America are growing by new conversions. And as you dig a little deeper, what you find is that those new conversions that they're counting, most often, about 80% of the time, are children who are coming to Christ that are already in the church. They're not those who have yet to be connected to the church. We keep going and we see some other things. We see that 50% of evangelical churches in America last year did not have a single new convert. 50% of evangelical churches in America did not have a single new convert. Josh McDowell says that 85% of kids raised in the church don't have a biblical worldview. What do we mean by that? A biblical worldview means that you allow the Bible to shape what you believe. Your views on morality. Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? 
Uh, is there an absolute right? Is there absolute wrong? How should I spend my money that you allow the Scripture to dictate those things? And what we're finding is more and more, not just with, with students and children, but even with adults, is they're looking to culture to define those things rather than looking to Scripture. 70% of kids raised in the church will drop out and not return, and they'll drop out between ages 18 and 24. And I thought this was interesting. I was in youth ministry for 12 years, and I fought this battle. How do we prepare kids? Why is it that kids are leaving the church as soon as they move away from home? And I think there's two reasons. I think, number one, because so often uh, we train them that church is a place to be entertained. And when I come to church and I'm not as entertained anymore, then I may as well sleep in. I think the second big reason is this. I think the biggest reason is that we have not given them and modeled for them a purpose greater than themselves. We've not been very good at modeling and giving them a purpose greater than themselves. And when they don't find it, when they don't see it, they decide, I guess there's nothing here. And they walk away. So we see 70% of kids raised in church walking away. Um, Barna says that 51% of pastors... Uh, in America do not hold a biblical worldview. And uh, as a result, less than 7% of churchgoers hold a biblical worldview. They're looking to culture rather than scripture to determine their views on right and wrong, heaven and hell. Um, Is there such thing as a sin nature? Love, sex, marriage, finances, and even our identity. This is the scoreboard. This is the scorecard that we're facing right now in America when it comes to the Great Commission. A couple weeks ago, I was asked to speak to our association uh, retreat. We're a part of uh, the Association of Hill Country Churches here in Greater Austin, and it's 26 churches. And I was asked to give a talk on um, discipleship, and I had no idea what I was going to talk about. And then one Friday night, we were having our family night, and the kids wanted to watch uh, one of of my favorite movies and uh, one of my favorite series. And so we put this movie in, And it hit me as soon as this opening scene uh, came about. So I I want you guys to watch this scene, and then we'll talk a little bit more about it. Lord Vader, this is an unexpected pleasure. We're honored by your presence. You may dispense with the pleasantries, Commander. I'm here to put you back on schedule. I assure you, Lord Vader, my men are working as fast as they can. Perhaps I can find new ways to motivate them. I tell you, this station will be operational as planned. The Emperor does not share your optimistic appraisal of the situation. But he asks the impossible. I need more men. Then perhaps you can tell him when he arrives. The Emperor's coming here? That is correct, Commander. And he is most displeased with your apparent lack of progress. We shall double our efforts. I hope so, Commander, for your sake. The Emperor is not as forgiving as I am. So we saw that, that opening scene where Darth Vader arrives and he's talking to the, the guy in charge. I don't know his name. Some, I bet there's somebody here who knows his name, who knows that character's name. But he arrives and he says, hey, look, uh, the, 
what's going on with the new, the new Death Stars not being built fast enough? And the guy gets a little bit scared when, he's tell, when he hears that the emperor's coming. And I love that, that line that stuck out to me. I heard it from the kitchen. I remember I was making dessert. I had my back turned. I was making the kids something to eat. And he said, the emperor is most displeased with your apparent lack of progress. And it hit me. I wondered if God was pleased with my apparent lack of progress when it comes to fulfilling the Great Commission. Am I really living as a disciple maker? And then I wondered about the church in America. The church, how are we doing? We just saw the scorecard. And I would say that if God were to speak to us today, I think he might say, you know what? I'm most displeased with your apparent lack of progress. I give you one thing. I give you one thing to do, and that was to make disciples. And here we are, we're falling short. But there's hope. There's hope because we know that Jesus tells uh, Peter, he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church after Peter has said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus gives him this promise. He says, the gates of hell will not overpower my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. So then why is it that perhaps we're failing as the church in America? And I would submit to you this, that perhaps the church in America is not making progress Because not every church in America is Jesus' church. Because we haven't followed his plan, his model, and his methods. That's not to say that churches aren't doing great things. Churches are doing great things. And I have to admit to some of this, uh, that at times, perhaps the reason we're not making disciples is because we're too focused on good things to be focused on the great things. And I'll, I'll be the first to admit that there are times when I get too focused on being a good preacher rather than being a great disciple maker. And there's lots of times when, when we get focused on having good programs rather than being great disciple makers or good worship rather than being great pro, uh, disciple makers. There's nothing wrong with those things. Those are all great, good things that we should want. We should desire churches that have good preaching, good worship, good programs. But what's wrong is when we put all of our focus there rather than on our individual responsibility to be great disciple-makers. Now, we talk about being a disciple-makers. Let's define what does it mean to be a disciple-maker. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Real quick, I want to point you to Matthew 4.19. I want to give us a real basic definition. Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Now, Jesus gives us three things here. First, he says, A disciple is someone who knows and follows Jesus. A disciple is someone who knows and follows Jesus. They've started a relationship with him. And I want to tell you, if you want to find your purpose in life, if you want to begin to understand what it means to live a life with purpose, you have to start with a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because when you know that your eternity is secure, you can live, uh, you can live like no one else. You can live with that assurance. And you can invest in things the way that other people can't. The next thing... We see, he says, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. So Jesus is telling them, I'm going to change who you are. So a disciple is someone who is being changed by Jesus. This is where the teaching to obey comes in, that, that we're looking to the word of God, and it's changing the way we live, it's changing the way we think, and it's changing even the way that we pray. Our prayers could be from being focused on us to things like Luke 10.2, God, would you send more harvest and more laborers to your harvest field? The last thing, Jesus says, and I will make you fish for people. And Jesus says, 
He wants us to join him in his mission. The last part is a disciple is someone who knows and follows Jesus, is being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. Jesus tells us his mission in John 17, 4. In John 17, he laid it out. His, his mission was to make disciples, to make disciples who would make disciples, who would spread the good news that Jesus came, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and on the third day rose from the dead. Howard Hendricks says this. He said, um, he says, you teach what you know, but you reproduce what you are. And this is the question when it comes to disciple making is, are we reproducing? Are we reproducing? Or are we just adding? Because addition will never get us to where we need to be when it comes to the Great Commission. Addition will never give us that fulfillment of our God-given purpose. And I want to show you just a little um, chart here of the difference between addition and multiplication. Now, Billy Graham was a pretty great uh, preacher. He was a great evangelist. And let's say that you have an evangelist who is able to lead one person a day per year, uh, every year for the next 16 years. They were able to lead one person a day to faith in Christ. Over 16 years, that's 5,840 people. That's pretty astonishing, don't you think? That's pretty great. How many of you would love in 16 years to have led 5,840 people to Christ? I know I would. Now let's take that same evangelist and let's say that what he does is he invests, he makes a disciple with someone. He reproduces himself in someone else. And then after a year, they each go and reproduce themselves in someone else. After 16 years, we get to this. We get to 65,536 people reached in the name of Jesus Christ. Now let's take that same thing and let's say we do that with three people. I'm going to meet with three men. I'm going to disciple them, and after a year, I'm going to send them out to disciple more people. After 16 years of that, we come to 43 million, excuse yeah, 43 million, 46,721 people reached in 16 years. This is the difference between multiplication, 5,000, almost 6,000, to 43,000. The difference between multiplication and discipleship. And I love that Billy Graham himself understood the difference. He said this, Mass crusades in which I believe and to which I have committed my life will never finish the Great Commission, but a one-by-one ministry will. When we reproduce ourselves, when we begin to multiply by making disciples, we have a chance. We have a chance of fulfilling the Great Commission in our lifetime that every man, woman, and child would hear the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ and have a chance to respond and that they would then be given a new purpose to join in and be a part of that. You know, and I think it's interesting that Jesus, when he looked, he saw this vision. Jesus saw something that would be unstoppable and he experienced this in Luke chapter 10. He, in Luke chapter 10, uh, Jesus has the 12 and then there's 72 And then he sends the 72 out, and then there's those who believe through the 72. And so Jesus is able to see four generations of movement, four generations of people coming to know their their Savior and beginning to walk with him. And in verse 21 of Luke 10, it says that Jesus was joyful. He was filled with joy as he heard the report of the 72 coming back and talking about those that they had pointed towards the kingdom. Why was Jesus filled with joy? 
Jesus was filled with joy because he had made disciples who were making disciples who were making disciples. And so by the time he gets to John 17, he's able to say, Lord, I have completed the work that you gave me to do. I've completed the work that you gave me to do. One day, wouldn't you love to look over your shoulder and see all the people that you've invested in by multiplying your life into theirs and those who've invested their lives by multiplying their life into someone else? One day, by the grace of God, we could see a movement spread. A movement spread. Your influence could literally change the globe impact nations in a way that would continue until Jesus comes again. That could happen. That is a purpose in my book. That is a purpose worth living for. That is the greatest thing that I could ask for. And it's not a guarantee, but I do believe that if I'm faithful in pursuing that, if I'm faithful in multiplying my life in other people, including my children, that'll be something that my children see. They'll see their dad and their mom who gave their lives to lead other people to Christ and to help them be followers of Christ who would then be trained up and sent out to make more followers of Jesus Christ. And I believe as my children see that, that that will impact them and that will give them a passion and a desire to follow God greater than any Bible study or any book that I could ever lead them through. I believe that. The first step in, in finding your purpose, in living for this purpose, is that you must decide that you're going to multiply your life in someone else. And I know for some of you that's intimidating. You say, well, I don't even know where to begin. I don't even know how to obey Jesus myself. And let me tell you that that's okay. That at River Rock Bible Church, we are committed to helping you become a disciple maker. We want to help you take that step. And in fact, on your connection card, there's a spot where you can just check the box that says, I would like to become a disciple maker. We want to help you learn not only what it means to know Jesus, to be changed by him, but to join him on mission. We want to equip you so that you would be able to go, that you would be equipped to lead other people to Christ and see them baptized, and you would be able to help them by teaching them to obey and then sending them out to repeat that process with someone else. Think about all that God could do Think about all that God could do in just 16 years if every one of us were to commit to say, you know what, I will multiply my life in someone else so that they can multiply their life in someone else. We have the opportunity for every man, woman, and child to experience the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ. That is possibly the greatest purpose we could ever have. I want to read you one last quote by a man named Steve Addison. He says, movements that change, this is from his book, Movements That Change the World. Movements are characterized by discontent, vision, and action. Discontent unfreezes people from their commitments to the way things are. Movements emerge when people feel something needs to change. If the vacuum created by discontent is filled with a vision of a different future and action to bring change, then a movement is born. Movements change people, and changed people change the world. I want to challenge you this morning. Let us be a church that is discontent with the scorecard that we saw earlier. Let us be a church that is discontent with where we are right now. Let us be discontent with the status quo of just being a part of something good. And let's be a part of the greatest thing, the great commission 
that Jesus gave us. Let that, let that uh, discontent lead us to a vision of every man, woman, and child. And let that vision lead us to action as we go throughout our week. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you invite us in to your work. Being a part of the Great Commission, Father, we recognize that you could have chosen some other way to spread the word, to spread the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. Yet you choose to use us. You choose to involve us in your mission of reaching the world. Lord, we ask that you would give us faithfulness. We ask that you would give us strength. We pray that we would be reminded of what Jesus promises at the end of Matthew chapter 28, that surely he will be with us even to the end of the age. And as we're intimidated, as we might be scared to take these steps, Lord, that we would know that you are with us. And as we look forward to the future, Father, we know that you are victorious overall. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.